Welcome back to this week's episode of the Thrive Theology Podcast. Today, we are going to be starting a series that we don't know how long it will be on the creeds of the Christian church over the years. We're going to be discussing the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and some others as well. And we're really excited to talk about this with you. Like I said, we're not sure how long this will end up being. It may end up being two or three episodes. We're just going to see how much we can get through in our allotted time slot. So the creeds are being discussed because there's something that we don't hear a lot about in churches today, depending on your faith tradition. Some faith traditions discuss the creeds a lot more, some only recite them occasionally, and the creeds that you discuss or recite also depend on what church you're going to and what denomination you're a part of. Um, Bethany and I, we personally have not learned much about the creeds at all. Um, I've heard of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, but didn't really know what they were about or anything like that. It was funny. I kept thinking of the Newsboys song, um, I Believe. Yes, I was just thinking of that too. (laughs) A lot of the creeds start with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, or or some variation of that. And then I kept like having that song get stuck in my head. It's in my mind right now. And as you were saying that, I'm thinking, you're right. I, I never was taught very much about the creeds. I do remember someone from another faith tradition, she and I, or she came to visit our church and she found it weird that we didn't say like a creed at the beginning or as part of the service. Hmm. Um, and then I was thinking when we sing that song in church, it feels very declaratory. It feels yeah. like here I stand, here is what I believe. Like a proclamation. Yeah. And it was really, it's really powerful. Like that's when you put your hands up. Well, I mean, I'm a hand raiser in church. Um, <laughs> I think both of us are at times. Yep. And so that's one of those ones where it's like, yes, this is what I believe. This is what I claim. And it feels like you're making your stand and the gates of hell are going to shake when they hear that. It feels very powerful. But like you said, that's about the only exposure that I have had to the creeds. Yeah. There's also the song, this I believe, or the creed from Hillsong as well. Like there's different songs that have incorporated creeds or used them in their songwriting, which I think is awesome because music does help us to remember things as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So even though I don't have like the creeds memorized, I could sing the song, right? Yeah. And they're not as detailed, but it's still there. So, So the creeds were really important in the life of the early church because the early church had a lot of heresy to fight, which we're going to get into later. And this is still a problem today, but especially as the church was emerging and starting to figure out what were the things that they absolutely had to hold on to and what were some things that could be interpreted differently, um, the creeds became really important. And the apostles and those who actually walked with Jesus started passing away as well. So you didn't have the people who were kind of the first generation Christians who could say, this is right and this is wrong. You really had to have a standard by which you measured other beliefs. So knowing the church's stance on a variety of issues just became increasingly important as time went on. And a lot of the church fathers were involved in hashing out and writing down these creeds. And a lot of these are what we get core doctrines from. Now, core doctrines are doctrines that were originally taught in the scriptures, um, but they were often fleshed out in these creeds. It's just like, if you have a rule, well, does the rule apply here? And then you give the different explanation. The creeds helped to draw a clear line between orthodoxy, which is right beliefs, and heresy, which is beliefs in opposition to the gospel of Christ. And this is especially important in this time period because you don't have a lot of um, academic resources circulating in the different schools of thought or the different places in the Christian world. And so if you have a very 
short, pithy um, phrase or saying or creed that has all of the essentials, that was a way of saying, okay, are, are you teaching wrongly or are you teaching rightly? Because it's not like you're going to know what somebody's teaching if they live 300 miles away unless somebody comes and tells you and it's this whole thing. So it makes it easy, made it easy for the different Christians to say, okay, you're in the fold and this is not right and this people should not listen to you. Something else I had come across in my research, and I didn't put this in the notes, Bethany, um, but I think I'll just mention it because these creeds were all developed within like the first several hundred years after Christ's death. So they were all roughly in the same time period. And that was the same time period where you had a lot of like really famous Greek philosophers Mm. and oral tradition was a huge deal. um, In these cultures, it was really important to the Jews because that they really emphasized memorization. So if you were a young Jewish boy attending school, you basically sat there and memorized a ton of stuff all the time. That's how you learned. And that was really important that you memorize verbatim um, the Old Testament and the Torah and the laws and the prophets and the wisdom literature. You had to just know that. And it wasn't enough to know the principles of it. You had to know the words verbatim. And that is how they pres- the Jewish people preserved their history for so long. Um, then you had the Greeks. Something that I just was fascinated by this. We have a high regard in our, our culture today for the written word. Like if you publish a book, you must know what you're talking about. And we will read very old literature and glean a lot from it. Um, people who have passed away, we will go back and read their works. And, you know, I really enjoy reading like Jane Austen, for example, and she lived you know, 200 years ago, but we still read that literature and have it in high regard. The Greeks were the opposite. Basically, spoken word was the highest, was held in the highest regard. So written words, a lot of uh, Greek philosophers actually believe that the written word was dead. That's kind of how they interpreted it because you couldn't debate and argue with it. So if you could articulate your argument and, you know, go back and forth and have that rhetoric that was considered much more valuable than a written word because a written word, you couldn't discuss it. You couldn't, that the person who wrote those words was dead. You couldn't push back on, on their concepts and that kind of thing. So creeds became important also for that reason as well. People had to know what they believed and be able to defend it. And that's where a lot of these creeds came from. That's why we ended up with early apologetics works, which we're going to get into later. But yeah, really fascinating, just a completely different culture. But both the Jews and the Greeks, which the early church was made up of, had a high regard for oral tradition. So I just thought that was really interesting. Wow. I did not know that. That is very interesting. Yeah. Um, Interesting, too, how now we go back and we're looking at the writings of or the works of these Greek philosophers. The only reason we know is because somebody wrote it down. Yeah. (laughs) And... I, I think we talked about this maybe in our how the New Testament or Old Testament was written, but um, there are way more copies of Old Testament and New Testament works, um, and they're way closer to when those people actually lived than a lot of these Greek philosophers. Like some of the writings we have from Greek philosophers, the only copies we have are 300 years out from when they lived. So they kind of shot themselves in the foot if they really wanted to get their message out at the time, but I guess they weren't thinking about, you know, 2,000 years in the future. But when you think about it, it also makes a lot more sense as to why they had like disciples, yeah. right? Like the Greek, yep. I forget like what order, who discipled who, but like Aristotle and Socrates and all that. Like they, Plato, yeah. Yeah. Like you had these like almost lineages of philosophers 
Absolutely. That weren't blood related. But if you were a philosopher, like you had a group of followers and they were, and you weren't just writing stuff in your office privately and sending it out to the world like you do now, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's how we interact with, with big leaders now. We just read their works. That's not the primary way. Right. (laughs) That's not the primary way that the Greeks did it. It was like, no, you had real people and you taught them your lines of reasoning and how you arrived at your conclusions. And then you debated other people. And that's, it was that iron sharpening iron kind Mm -hmm. of concept. So we're going to start with the Didache. This word means teaching. The full title is the teaching of the 12 apostles. The Didache was discovered in a monastery in Constantinople, which is an ancient city in the country of modern-day Turkey, um, which is the city now known as Istanbul. It was published in 1883 by P. Brenios, and it was believed to have been compiled between 50 and 380. Now, that's a very large time span of when it could have been written, and that's because there's some dispute. There's a lot of dispute of how legitimate this writing is. Some say it's the earliest Creed of the Apostles, dating as early as 50 AD. Remember, this would only have been 20 years after Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. While others say it's a highly fictionalized work, not being written until the 3rd century, which is long after the first apostles were dead. So in the Didache, there are no dates or mention of world events that help us date the writing itself. It was written sort of as an instruction manual for Christians with quotes included from the New Testament, what we would now consider part of the New Testament. And it's comprised of four parts. The first part talks about the way of life versus the way of death. The second part is instructions for three Um, of the major ordinances, such as baptism, the Lord's Supper, and fasting. So how this should all be done. And it also includes prayers of thanksgiving that should be used when you're taking the Lord's Supper and at what points when you're taking the Lord's Supper that that should be used. The third part talks about ministry and how to treat and interact with itinerant preachers or traveling prophets. And the fourth part talks about Jesus's second coming, and it's sort of like a word of encouragement to live in light of eternity. When making reference to the church, the Didache describes it quite primitively. There's not a ton of detail given, and this leads scholars to believe that it's from the earliest phases of Christian history when the church really didn't have a ton of tradition and that sort of thing set out yet. So there are some interesting teachings in the Didache, and we're going to share some of those with you now. And the quotes that we're going to share in a few minutes have been modernized into our current form of English. Um, But first, I'm going to talk about what the Didache says about false prophets. It gives a list of ways to identify a false prophet, and here are the standards. If a prophet stays more than two days in a town, he's a false prophet. If he asks for money, he's a false prophet. If his life does not reflect submission to God, he's a false prophet. If he eats while speaking in the spirit he's a false prophet. Or if he teaches the truth, but doesn't actually do what he teaches, he's a false prophet. Wow. Those are some high standards. Yeah. Don't eat while you're speaking in the spirit. Well, I mean, don't, yeah. Don't talk when your mouth is full, I guess. (laughs) Well, I think it's really interesting because I, yeah, food in that culture, like 
just had a different, yeah, had a different implication. Like you would fast while you prayed and all that sort of right. thing. So it, it was a little bit different. Kind of like giving a level of respect when you're speaking in, in tongues or in the spirit or whatever. Yeah. Like if you're like, I speak for God while you're stuffing your face, like maybe your motives are to eat and not, <laughs> not to actually yeah. speak um, in, in God's name. I find it interesting too, that there's a lot of rules for prophets. Like, I don't know if we have record of many prophets around that time. Well, that would be, that would be like a traveling preacher or prophet. Okay. Yeah. So similar to like what Paul was doing and that kind of thing. Um, If you're a prophet, you're claiming to have a word from God. Right. Okay. So that's what they mean by prophet. In the book, Jesus, the healer, author Stephen Davey says, the Didache is a text that gives instruction on how a Christian community should treat itinerant Christian prophets. It was written sometime in the late 1st or 2nd century and gives good evidence for a structured church's shift in orientation away from spirit possession. The Didache is written from the viewpoint of a community leadership that distrusts and yet respects Christian prophets, one that wishes the prophets would leave town as quickly as possible, yet would have them welcomed in town when they arrive. Here's a quote from the Didache on how Sunday services should work. It says, On the Lord's day, come together, break bread, and give thanks, having first confessed your sins, so that your sacrifice may be pure. Anyone who has a dispute with another must not join your assembly until they have been reconciled, so that your sacrifice may not be defiled. For this is the sacrifice spoken of by the Lord. In every place and at every time, offer me a pure sacrifice, for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations." That really stood out to me that you have to settle a dispute with anyone else before going to church. I wonder what our churches would look like today if we actually <laughs> practice that and we're that serious about disputes being reconciled before going to church. That kind of stood yeah. out to me. I'm thinking, like, Emily and I kind of keep a pulse on what's going on in the North American Christendom. So we kind of know what different discussions are happening in the different social spheres. And I'm thinking currently a lot of the issues are based around like the sex abuse scandals, especially in like the Baptist churches or um, the current controversy on whether or not women can preach and a lot of, or abuse, just spiritual abuse. A lot of these things, if you're going to settle your disagreement, would you would have to agree that first there is an issue which mm-hmm. a lot of these issues are just being covered up. Like it's a scandal because it was hidden at some point. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, I wonder how that would work. I wonder if, how that would work if you had said, you know what, I can't come to church because this person is being spiritually abusive. Like, is that how that works? Cause I'm pretty sure you're supposed to like take two or three. I don't know. It seems like there's well, ways of playing it out that would make it more complicated. Yeah. The Matthew 18 passage is not talking about abuse. It's Correct. talking oh, about right. a brother right. and a brother, yeah, not you're right. a, a vulnerable person and somebody who has authority over you're that right. vulnerable person. So we do have to be careful with how we apply that. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, I just think about it would really like force people to resolve things quickly or be not part of the fellowship. Right. But anyway, yeah, that's a conversation for another time. Some other um, instructions for conflict between believers says... And reprove one another, not in anger, but in peace, as the gospel tells you. If one of you does wrong to another, do not speak a word to him until he repents. Your prayers, your giving to the poor, and all your deeds should be done in accordance with the gospel of our Lord. Interesting, because this contradicts Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, which say... 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So in these verses, Jesus says that if a fellow believer sins against you, you should be the one to bring it to his attention, then get others involved if needed. So kind of a backwards way than what the Didache says here. Well, yeah. And again, this is not talking about abuse. This is talking about two equals in the church, two brothers dealing with their issues. Um, I just thought that it was really interesting that Jesus is like, when somebody sins against you, you have to be the one to go and tell them. Like if somebody... I don't know, doesn't pay their debt to you. You have to be the one to go to them and be like, yo, you owe me money and you didn't pay when you said you would. Um, but the Didache says, if somebody wrongs you, like give them the silent treatment. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was really interesting. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons we don't consider this canon. Right. Right. This isn't part of the New Testament. Like Jesus teaching overrides this. So the Didache is not perfect. We want, we're not saying it's scripture or anything like that. And this is one example of that where it seems to, to contradict. Um, this could be talking more about what Paul says when he says that if somebody will not listen to the church, and Jesus said this too in Matthew, then you put them out of the fellowship and you you treat them as an unbeliever. Um, so I think that that's just really interesting. It's just food for thought. Yep. It's So that is all that we have on the Didache, and now we're going to talk about a specific papyrus that was discovered in Egypt. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce this, but I think it's the Deer Baliza papyrus. So this papyrus is a Greek manuscript that was discovered in Egypt in 1907. It was found in the ruins of an ancient monastery, which is the Deer Baliza Monastery, And it states, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit, and in the resurrection of the flesh, and in the Holy Catholic Church. And note here that Catholic, with a small c, means universal. So it's like saying the Holy Global Church, um, not the Roman Catholic Church. And that's all we have on that papyrus. Um, But I just think it's really interesting that this was found in this ancient monastery, and it, it is like a very brief creed. It's stating um, all three members of the Trinity, and it talks about the resurrection of the flesh and the church as well. Next up, we have the Apology of Aristides of Athens. Aristides wrote Apology for the Christian Faith addressed to the Roman Emperor, most likely Hadrian. Hadrian reigned from 117 to 138 AD, and this was delivered to him around 125 AD. Some think it might have been addressed instead to Antoninus Pius, that he lived from 138 to 161 AD. It's addressed to Caesar, Titus, Hadrianus, and Toninus. So it includes both names. And, and, and Roman emperors would often like take on prior emperors' names yeah. just to More kind authority. of... authority. Yeah, and like portray the illusion that they are a god. Yeah. So we don't really know if it was Hadrian or his successor, but either way, it's within the same time period. It, the full Syriac translation of this work was discovered in 1889 in the Library of St. Catherine's in Sinai. 
Aristides' intention in writing out this early work of apologetics was to give the emperor a clear definition of what Christians believe in the midst of persecution that the early church was experiencing. I find this to be a very courageous thing to do, to name yourself as a Christian when Christians are being persecuted, and to give it to the Roman emperor. Like that's That takes some guts. Okay, our last creed of today is another short one. This is the creed of Cyprian of Carthage. So Cyprian was the bishop of Carthage, and he later would become a martyr, and he died in 258 AD. Before his death, he came up with a brief statement of faith regarding baptism. A lot of people were wondering, you know, how do we baptize, and what's the standard for that? And so, of course, basing his statement off of Jesus' teaching of baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he came up with this. It says, I believe in God the Father, in his Son Christ, in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the forgiveness of sins and eternal life through the Holy Church. So that was his personal little creed, and it is something that we know about today, which is pretty cool. I, in listening to all of these and like going through them, you feel like a connection to these people because we say these same things. It's neat that this has persisted all the way till now. Like when we baptize people, we say basically the same thing. Um, and it just reminds you that even though Christians live in different time periods, at some point, all of those who love God and have claimed forgiveness of sins from him will be together. Like we'll be able to meet these people. How cool is that? It's kind of mind-blowing. It is. Sometimes I just have these moments where this just comes through and I'm like, oh yeah, like are we consider ourselves to be so modern and so like developed and it, these people were people too and they were just as smart as we were and they had to come up with these solutions to issues and they did so using these creeds and it worked. For the most part, it worked. Like we still use some of these today. Yeah, it's when you think about it, it's really cool to just think that you're literally connected across hundreds and thousands of years. Yeah. By these creeds. Yeah. And that's just that's just fascinating. And it's it makes you feel pretty small. Yes. But a good in a good way. In a good way. Yeah. It makes you just I think a lot of the time we think of the body of believers as like our local church or the global church, you know, or like the North American church or yeah. all the people who are in the same denomination we are. And there's other right. crazy. Yeah. But then when you think about the body of Christ being like the last several thousand years of church history, and then even the Jewish people before that, it it's just, it's mind blowing. Yeah. How many people that just spans and how many ages and cultures and languages you know? Yeah. And I think the fact that they were dealing with issues that we are now is also a comfort because it's not like God's going to leave his people to their own devices. He's not just going to let us figure it out on our own. Like his Holy Spirit is working in believers to speak truth into situations. And even though we deal with heresy now, like we've talked about some issues that are very divisive and could draw people off track very easily. And these people were dealing with the exact same things with, that they were having struggles with, but they had, didn't have the ease of communication we do. Although sometimes I think the communication that we have now causes more problems because anybody can publish anything and you can get your name out and your story out very quickly to lots of people in real time. And I don't know if that's the wisest thing. I think when we had to read books and like actually write things down, we thought about them a bit more. But they both come with good things and bad things. For sure. 
Well, we have come to the end of our first episode here. We do have some recommended resources for you. You can find those in the show notes um, as well as we'll probably put a blog together with them later. Yeah, I'll release when we're done talking about all the creeds, I'll release a blog post with some additional resources. We did that with our health series. So if you were tuning into that series and you missed that, you can check that out on our website um, under the blog page. Um, But I will do the same thing for these creeds. I'll list a whole bunch of resources so you can look up any one of these creeds and find out more about each of them. Obviously, we're going to do our best to relay all the info to you, but there's always different perspectives and details and nuances that we just don't have the time or capacity to cover in one podcast episode. So we'll encourage you to check that out too. Um, Keep your eye out for that in the coming weeks as well. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the Thrive Theology podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. For show notes, resources, blog posts, and a complete archive of episodes, visit us at thrivetheology.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We'll chat with you next time.